This is the word of God from Matthew 25, 31 through 40 and 45. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. One, two. Yo, what's up? <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. It is, uh, it's an honor to be here with all of you. Um, an interesting thing for, the, we were telling Brother Mark this morning is that, uh, so a while ago, it was like maybe like five years ago, uh, Han and I, we uh, were, it's kind of like thinking about places where to move in the U.S., and we went uh, to a website that was called uh, Find Your Spot. And you do a test, kind of, like a quiz, and you enter all your interests, all the stuff you do. I love to fly fish. I used to rock climb as well. And the place that came up was uh, Chattanooga. And, you know, we never thought that this would be the home of the, our sending church because back then we, we had no idea, you know, so... Praise God that we're here. Uh, it is truly an honor to be here with you guys. Uh, today, my prayer is that what, what Paul told the, uh, the church in Rome, that we will be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. As Pastor Isaiah mentioned, my name is Nestor Gomez, and I uh, serve as one of the pastors at Bluegrass Community Church, a church that was planted from this church, uh, we, I think we have pictures of Michael and Jennifer being sent out, uh, yeah, with the congregation from uh, here. And uh, yeah, so four and a half years ago, Pastor Michael left to uh, Lexington. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the area where we're planting our church. They all send uh, greetings for you guys, and uh, yeah, they are meeting this morning as well. So Bluegrass Community Church. It is a, a very young church. Is this one working as well? Yeah, right? Yeah, okay. Um, so it is a very young church, you know. Uh, it is located in Lexington's 11th district. 
Uh, we got about 26,000 people within our district. Lexington is about 320,000 people. Uh, if I could use one word to describe uh, the area of town where we're planting our church would be readiness. Readiness. So the area of the city where we are, uh, thir about 30% of the, uh, the people that live within our district live below the poverty level. Uh, the uh, neighborhood where we're planting the church includes most of these people, right? Most of them are immigrants. Uh, we have people from all over the world living in Cardinal Valley, people from the Caribbean islands, from South America, Mexico, uh, a lot of people from Africa as well, from Haiti. Uh, they all come to the U.S. ready, right? They are preparing, right, for a new life. They come ready to, to work, ready to, to pursue uh, a better, right, a more stable financial future for them and for their families. Uh, and just as a muscle uh, has to be tense, becomes tense in readiness for action, our neighborhood uh, can also be a place of tension. This tension can sometimes get out of control, uh, resulting in brokenness and distress. But not all tension is bad, right? Tension can also be good. There is a, uh, a technique that uh, uh, weightlifters and uh, physical therapists use uh, in order to develop muscle, for muscles to grow healthy, uh, stronger, and uh, yeah, and just, just, just grow. And this technique is called time under tension. Based on this technique, there are three elements that make up for, a good, for, for the growth of a good muscle. That is time, that is tension, and then there is posture. Based on time under tension, uh, these three things are the main factors that contribute to a good, uh, healthy, muscular growth. In Matthew 25, the text that we just read, Jesus is standing in Mount of Olives, and he's preaching his very last sermon. In this last sermon, uh, before, before his crucifixion, he's speaking to his disciples. Jesus presents his teaching through three different parables. As the master uh, of analogies that he was, he's teaching his disciples uh, about three main things in, in Matthew chapter 25. Um, all of these three parables are meant to point the eyes of the disciples to Jesus' second coming. But while he's doing that, he's also teaching them, he's, he's showing them how is that they must wait for his second coming. In this uh, chapter, we have the parable of the ten virgins. What that parable teaches us is that we must be hopeful. Then we have the parable of the talents. What that parable teaches is that we must remain faithful as we await for Jesus' second coming. The parable that we will be looking at today is the parable of the sheep and goat. On that parable, Jesus teaches us that posture is also important. He teaches us that as Christians, the posture that we will adopt, that we should adopt as we await for his second coming, it is a posture as, as those who love mercy. Readiness for Jesus' second coming is at the center of his last, very last teaching before his crucifixion. How can the disciples 
prepare for Jesus' second coming. Now, we must be careful. We need to be cautious not to understand this parable as the means to obtain, to be justified before the Lord. Jesus is not teaching that, and it, it will be very important that we understand that, because if we, if we see this teaching as a way for us to obtain justification, we will be missing the whole point. Jesus is speaking to his followers, not to non-believers. So today, as I preach from this text, just keep that in mind. The answer that is being, the, the question that Jesus is trying to answer is how can we, as followers of Christ, await, be ready, prepare for his return? It is very important for us to know God in the way that the Bible describes God. Um, it is, uh, as I was listening to the liturgy this morning, I just want you to know that I didn't share my sermon with Pastor Isaiah before, uh, before today. I just sent him the title, the, the text, and uh, the main outline. But uh, the liturgy that we saw was, in so, was so aligned with today's text. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, the Apostle Paul uh, writes to the church, and uh, he tells the church, he says, Now these three, may, th these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of all of these is love. Why is that that that's the greatest of all of these three? Because the day that Jesus returns, hope and faith will no longer be needed. But love. Love will never end. This is why it's so important to, to, to know God in the way that the Bible describes Him. Love is the, one, the only attribute that describes God out of these three. And it is important to know God in this way. Because when we take our eyes off the, 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 the person of Christ, the person of God, and we don't see God as love, we create limited views of God. We start creating limited views of Christ. These limited Christologies or the way we understand God can also lead to a limited view of human life. And according to Jesus, loving mercy is not just an internal feeling, but a posture that can be seen and that we should emulate. A posture that we should imitate as well. This said, today's big idea, central idea for our text, is that the second thing worse than idolatry before the Lord is to overlook people in their distress. The second thing worse than idolatry before God is to overlook people in their distress. The sermon will be divided in three different sections. The first, the first one will be called uh, Loving Mercy. The intersection where the Imago Dei and true religion meet. Our second section will be Imago Dei. That means that all humans are created as the image of God. And the third and last section will be true religion. Loving widows, orphans, and the poor in their distress. So let's pray. Padre, te damos gracias por la oportunidad de abrir tu palabra y de compartir, Señor, sobre el último mensaje, la última predicación, Padre, que Jesús predicó mientras estaba con sus discípulos. 
Lord, we ask you that you will allow us to be humble. Holy Spirit, help us to be humble and to be able to receive this word with the significance that we should. As this was Jesus' very last sermon on earth before his crucifixion. Lord, I pray that you will give me clarity of thought, boldness, and wisdom as I handle your word, Father. It is in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, part of our liturgy today uh, included Micah 6.8. On Micah 6.8, the prophet speaks to the people of God, and he tells them, he asks the question, what is it that God requires of you? And he goes on and he answers to them, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our Lord. So how can we love mercy? Isn't it mercy just a feeling, something internal that we feel? How do we practice mercy? Well, in regards to practicing mercy and loving mercy, there is a, the Bible has a lot to say about it. According to Matthew 25 and the rest of the scriptures, to love mercy is to make the interest of the most vulnerable, the concerns of the poor, the central point in our lives and ministry. It is said that St. Augustine used to, used to uh, use uh, Matthew 25 as a lens to interpret all of Scripture, including the Psalms. There is a writing where he says that this was the chapter, the teaching of the Lord that has moved him the most. The topic of poverty and God's concern for the vulnerable and the distressed is the second most uh, common topic in the Old Testament. And it comes second to idolatry. That's going to be very important as we explore what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 25. In the gospel, uh, in the New Testament, uh, you will find the topic of caring for the poor and the distressed and the overlooked once in every ten, ten verses of the Bible, every ten verses of the, the, the Gospels. In the Gospel of Luke, this ratio is even higher. You find it once in every seven verses. The care for the poor, the vulnerable, the distressed, the overlooked, especially starting within the body of Christ, is central to our walk, to our path as Christians. As we go through this text, we will also see that the poor is not just the poor in spirit. To see the poor as the poor in spirit is to neglect the entirety of Scripture. Here the poor, here the poor is the one who finds himself in vulnerable situations. Here the poor is the one who finds himself being oppressed by other siblings. There is a, uh, a brother named John Fuller that he used to say that there are no God-forsaken uh, places, but church-forsaken places. In our cities, God doesn't forsake anyone. That has been a reality for us as we continue to engage and do ministry in the poorest area of Lexington. But I can tell you what, what there is is church-forsaken places. God never forsakes his children. 
In Matthew 22, 34 through 40, we learn that about a time when a Pharisee, an expert of the law, came and asked Jesus this question. He was trying to test him. This Pharisee said, teacher, which command out of all the law is the most important one? And Jesus looks at him, and without any hesitation, Jesus says, to love, to love God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the, is the, is the greatest and most important command. But Jesus didn't stop there. This Pharisee was asking for only one, only the greatest. But just as equally important as the greatest commandment in all Scripture, there was a second one, which was to love your neighbor. This Pharisee probably asked himself, what about the other 611 laws that we find in the law of Moses? But Jesus pointed his eyes to these two commandments. These two are like the wings of a plane. This is a plane in which one wing is, is labeled love your God and the other wing is labeled love your neighbor. Inside this plane is the entirety of Scripture. The entirety of everything we know about the Bible. You can resume this in the five solas for those who are reformed. If you don't love your God and if you don't love your neighbor, none of it matters. None of it. Brothers and sisters, when the Son of Man returns with all His power and might and all the angels with Him and all the nations under heaven, including those that have already disappeared, He will come as a shepherd. And he will look at every Christian, every person that follow him. And he will judge them with one question. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And Jesus the King will say to those on the right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom that I have prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was an immigrant, and you cared for me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. There is so much that could be said about these, these words that Jesus is saying, but the three things that I want you to, 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 to keep in mind as we move farther is that Jesus is not speaking in a figurative way. Jesus is not giving a suggestion. Just as bad as idolatry is, it is the neglection and ignoring the poor, ignoring our brothers, the ones that are in, in those vulnerable situations. These three things are that Jesus is offering a statement of fact. When the Son of Man comes, and He's not speaking as any king, He is speaking as the king. 
The second thing is that this passage speaks about the authority of Jesus. The third thing is that Matthew 25, 32 speaks of individual judgment, where personal gifting, responsibilities, and accountability will not overlook by this king. For the king to know who is a sheep and who is a goat will require not only knowledge of human actions, but an intimate understanding of the motives of the heart. In this parable, Jesus is, it is, he's extending to his followers an invitation. That made all of Jesus' parables unique. They always came with an invitation. The invitation here is the same invitation that he was extending to these Pharisees in Matthew 22. An invitation to look up and fix their eyes with all their heart, all their soul, and all their mind on Jesus' second coming. But not only that. Jesus didn't only say, you need to be looking up as you wait for me on earth. He also encourages to be looking at ground level. Just as important as it is to be looking up for the day when Christ returns, to be eager and expectantly as we remain patient, just as important as, as that is, it is also so important that we look at ground level, at the needs of those who are being oppressed. If we were Christians that are always looking up and only focusing on theological matters while we neglect what is happening outside our church, we will be tripping all day. We love mercy. When God's grace and favor, when by God's grace and favor, we gain a true understanding of the dignity and worth of human life and practice our faith in a way that reflects love towards those who are being oppressed, the vulnerable, and the marginalized. Mercy stands alone. Mercy stands alone in the busy intersection where the imago Dei and true religion meet. Let me explain what I mean by this as we go to our second point, the Imago Dei, the fact that all humans are created as God's image. In Gen if, if you have a Bible with you, please open your Bible in Genesis chapter 1, versículo 26, 27. Here we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. The Imago Dei concept, it is a concept that is found in the Old Testament several times. We find it in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 9. The Imago Dei refers to the biblical fact that all men and women have been created as the image of God. There is, a, there is a, 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 some people say, in the likeness or in the image of God. I prefer to say, as the image of God. Understanding what this means is just as important as understanding who God is. 
What I want you to see as we explore this text is that there is a, a direct correlation between idolatry, which means taking off our eyes from the person of Christ and neglecting the poor, taking off our eyes from our neighbor. When you don't love God, you fall into idolatry. When you don't love your neighbor, we have lost the view of what the imago Dei truly means. There are a few things that I want you to uh, know from, from what we know about the imago Dei based on Scripture. This is that only humans were created as the image of God. No other, cre no other being in creation was created as the image of God. Only men and women are, dist are distinct in this way. Genesis tells us that humanity is in some way like God. In some way, we are like our creator. We are a copy of our creator. How? There are multiple views about this. The beautiful mystery here is that in some way, we are like God. Men and women don't grow into the image of God. We don't develop into the image of God. We don't become the image of God. We are the image of God. There is no partial image of God. We are the image of God. Whatever the Imago Dei means, that is transferred to us from the moment of conception. From the moment life starts, we become, we are, as the image of God. As the image of God on earth, men and women were created to steward creation, not the opposite. But as the Bible tells us, as we read in the, in, in, in the history of, of the world, this copy of men and women as God's image was damaged. Although it wasn't destroyed. And that is so important for us to understand because a, a, a deficient view of men and women as the image of God, a deficient view of men and women in the womb and outside the womb will result in us not loving our neighbors. The copy of men and women as the image of God was damaged. Romans 3.23 tells us that. But God had a plan to restore humanity. The copy of God on earth would be restored to what it used to be before the fall. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus accomplished this. Jesus was the exact representation of God. Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time. Jesus revealed to us who God was. John 1.18, and Jesus was a perfect human being. The New Testament teaches that the only way men and women can be restored to what they were before is by placing their faith in this Jesus. Any person who places his faith on, in, and trust in Jesus and repents from his sin has entered into this process of restoration. However, it's not a process that will be completed on this side of eternity, right? That is why... Jesus is preparing his disciples for, to be prepared, to be ready for his return. The day when the copy of God will be fully restored. This said, anything, any, anything that you might imagine 
that could threaten human dignity at any stage of life is a scandal to God. Our God is a God who loves life. Our God is a life who loves every human being because they were, we all were created as his image. In 2 Timothy 2.4, Paul tells Timothy that God wants some to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved. That's God's desire for humanity. He wants everyone to come to the knowledge of who he is. In Luke 14, we read the account of uh, when Jesus went to uh, eat uh, at a Pharisee's home. Uh, Jesus, uh, he was bold, right? He wasn't a man that you could exchange pleasantries with. He gets to this home. And there is a bunch of Pharisees. And he gives three speeches during that visit. He talks to the, uh, he talks to the, to, the, to the people that were invited. And he gives them an advice that probably made them upset. Then he goes on and he, he doesn't stop there. He goes with the host and he tells the host, hey man, next time that you have a feast, I'm going to tell you how I would do it. Instead of inviting the rich, the wealthy, your, your friends, your family... Why don't you invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, the unwanted to my feast? That was two strikes for Jesus there, right? What we learn from Luke chapter 14 is that sometimes we see people using accounting terms as assets and as liabilities. Sometimes anyone who will draw energy from us, anyone who will draw our time, our financials, is seen as a liability. We don't have to say it. Our actions demonstrate that. Oh, but anyone that we're going to have a good time with, any person that, you know, you can go and get a, a coffee and have a good conversation with this brother or sister, we see them as assets. And the problem is not to, to go and have fun with people you like. The problem is when you surround your life and you live in a way that everyone around you is an asset. Jesus doesn't qualify. He doesn't character, characterize people, categorize people as liabilities or assets. And neither we should, should we? Why? Because for Jesus, all people, regardless of their current situation, are made as his Father's image. If we love Jesus, then we will love the unwanted. If we love Jesus, we will love the undesirable. If we love Jesus, we will go to the margins of our cities and spend time with those that nobody wants to hang out with. A faithful Christian would never be at ease when the representatives, the, the copies of God on earth, the men and women that were made to, to represent God as His image are being mistreated, overlooked, or oppressed. To love the poor is to love Jesus. St. Augustine used to say that Christ is continually present with us on earth in the poor. 
And Christ is needy when the poor person is in need. And he is hungry when the poor are hungry. To come to the aid of other Christians in vulnerable situations is to come to the aid of Christ, who is present in and with and among the poor. Brothers and sisters, God loves everyone in an equal way. Don't get me wrong and don't confuse favoritism with preference. You can offer preference to the poor without showing favoritism. God doesn't show favoritism to anyone, but he does show a preferential love and concern for those who are in vulnerable situations. The entire Bible from beginning to end, starting with Cain and Abel, mirrors God's preferential love for the vulnerable and the abused in human history. This preference brings out the righteous and unmerited character of God's love to humanity. The same message given by Jesus in the Beatitudes uh, is what, 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 what we read of in the entirety of the Old Testament. Some people say, oh, well, the, the God of the Old Testament was a, an angry God. But no, he was a God was, who was constantly looking over the poor, over the neglected. Just look at Israel. God gives a message of life to every human being, every person and man, without exception. But at the same time, he chose a preference for the poor and the oppressed. More than 2,000 verses in the Bible speak of God's heart for the oppressed. This is why churches should have as a core mission to always be engaging and reaching the most neglected and overlooked neighborhoods in our city. It is because of this that second to idolatry, second to idolatry, the worst thing that a follower of Christ can do is to live a life that shows no concern or regard for the poor. Our third point today is through religion. Remember that mercy, loving mercy, mercy stands alone. True mercy doesn't have a lot of friends. Mercy stands alone in this intersection where the, a good understanding of who people are as made at, as God's image, the Imago Dei, and true religion meet. So what's true religion? If you have a Bible, please uh, turn uh, to uh, James chapter 1, verse 27 with me. In James chapter 1, verse 27, we read, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You keep yourself unstained from the world when you have your eyes looking up to Christ, to God. You love your neighbor when you look after the most vulnerable. What good is it to love only the neighbors that will allow us to have a good time? 
the ones that you might like to go hiking with, the ones that you might like to go fishing with, uh, the ones that you normal, you, you, your schedule might be busy, right? And you're like, man, if I have one night free during the week, I really want to have this friend over. But our neighbors, our neighbors here are the orphans and the widows. Those who back then represented the most vulnerable and oppressed people. James con continues with his exposition on this topic. And in James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26, he expands on it by saying that true faith reveals itself in works. Faith alone saves, but faith that saves never comes alone. It always reveals itself through living deeds, through acts of mercy. And not acts of mercy towards everyone, but specifically towards the vulnerable and the oppressed. Now, I'm going to bring you back to what I said in the beginning. Matthew 25 is not the text that we go to, to to understand or see how we can enter into the kingdom of God. No, Matthew 25 tells us how those who have entered, truly entered into the kingdom of God live. James says, who can see a brother or sister without clothes or food and tell him, hey, just go, go in peace, stay warm. And be well fed without giving them what their bodies need. What good is that? In the same way, faith that doesn't have works is dead by itself, James tells us. James' concern here is not with the means of justification. It's not how we can be saved, how we can enter the kingdom of God, but about the visible evidence of true saving faith. In Galatians, Paul teaches us... Uh, the, 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 that we are saved by faith alone, but here James chose us that saving faith never remains alone. And Jesus is doing exactly the same in Matthew 25. Brothers, if your understanding of God, if your understanding of your personal theology, if you adhere to the five solas, and you have them in this plane, and the two wings in this plane are not labeled as love God and love your neighbor. That plane will crash. It's not going to fly. It doesn't matter how much theology you know. It doesn't matter how well you can, you can, you can give an exposition of scripture. It doesn't matter how well, you can, how, how well you can articulate your faith. If you, we don't love God and we don't love our neighbor, that plane will crash. Matthew 25, 37 through 41, he sa Jesus says, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and, fed you and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in? Or without clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or, or, or in prison and visit you? And the king, the king, not any king, the king will answer them. Truly I tell you. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me. You are cursed. They are not being cursed as a new curse. They, they were never saved. The sheep and the goat 
were followers of Christ. Those who were cheap were also surprised about the, about the way that Jesus was measuring the way their, their, their faith was lived out, fleshed out as they were on earth. The sheep and the goat here are, are followers of Christ. That's people, are people that come to church every, every Sunday. And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did also for me. But those on the left, he will tell them, Depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Loving mercy should be the main thing why the world knows us for. Because of our love. This is a difficult text. It is a hard text. And it is meant, this is why St. Augustine used this text every, every morning he would wake up. He would read this text every time he preached, every time he wrote. This was the text that this brother used to, as a lens to understand all of Scripture. This week we lost a giant of the faith. Tim Keller. He shaped so many Christians in so many different ways. And I, I've seen how people are sharing some of the, the, his last words, some quotes, right? I don't see a lot of people preaching this today. And this word, Jesus, is la it was literally Jesus Last sermon before he was crucified. As a loving father, God cannot stand idle when one of his children is being, is being mistreated or oppressed. Especially when they are being taken advantage of by another sibling. He always intervenes on their behalf in the, in the face of their suffering. To remain neutral to the suffering and oppression of an image bearer of God. It's just as bad as being the one who is afflicting them. Tragedy has never ruined a person or a community. A friend and good brother in Christ, John Wichekwa, always says this. Tragedy has never ruined a person or a community, but hopelessness has. And will continue to do if we don't engage as God's church. In the Old Testament, you, we see God engaging, always intervening when somebody was being oppressed. In the New Testament, after Christ, we, the church, are God's feet and hands. We are the ones that must intervene. One of my favorite theologians, René Padilla, Ecuadorian brother, if you, if you can, read from him. He has been misrepresented Big time, underrepresented. René Padilla says that uh, effective evangelism uh, is this. The proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of the gospel that gives itself in service. And he says that proclamation without demonstration is an incomplete. And he uses a very strong word here. It is also a mutilated gospel. And consequently, contrary to the will of God. From this perspective, it is foolish to ask 
about the relative importance of being a church that has a good proclamation of the gospel if we are a church that has a very poor demonstration of the gospel in the streets. It would be the equivalent of asking about the relative importance of the right and the left wing of a plane. This question always haunts me. Everything we do at, a church, at our church, uh, we try to, to do it by looking at our different ministries, uh, activities through this question. Is the theological, doctrinal approach and ministry practice of our church, our family, sufficient for the contextual needs of the most neglected and distressed people around us? Loving mercy includes both the proclamation and demonstration of the, of, of the good news of Christ through Christian teaching, presence, and social engagement for the transformation, the flourishment of those who are poor around us. Faith, faith as an abstract concept will never be enough. Faith as an abstract concept without works will never be enough. Jesus had a term for those who practice their faith without deeds. I was hypocrites. Hypocrisy. That's theoretical faith. Matthew 25, in Matthew 25, the goats are those who only had an abstract view of faith. Those who were only looking up, but never took the time to also look down. Today in our cities, there are streets, neighborhoods, districts, where the needs and problems that people are facing are so tangible, so visible, so overwhelming, and the solutions are so underwhelming. This is why the church is so essential. You can live without a lung. You can live without a, an arm, without an eye. But you cannot live without a heart. The church in the world is what a heart is to a body. It is essential. It is indispensable. Churches with a sound orthopraxy, with a, with a good way of expressing their faith outside in their daily lives are needed because they are the only tangible example of a good God in a broken world. True religion in this, in this way calls for faith embodied in works of love, mercy, and justice. Our religion most emphasized the embodiment of justice and the creation of a social order over abstract faith or thoughts. The church must be the evangelizer of the poor and one with them, a witness to the value of the riches of a good God and the humble servant of the one in distress. Its pastors, the pastors of the church, 
the leadership of the church, the people of God in the church, they must be able to correlate their life, their words, their time, their finances to the demands of the gospel, but also to the necessities of the overlooked, the underserved, and the neglected. Pastor Tabiriania William, he has a, 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 a phrase that he always says. He says that uh, we must proclaim the gospel and demonstrate the gospel from the four corners of our block to the four corners of the world. As we conclude with Matthew 25, uh, let's read Matthew 25, 45. Verse 45 says, Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you, did, you didn't do for one of the least of these, you didn't do for me. I believe that the least of these are Christians, brothers and sisters in the faith. However, what Jesus is teaching us is that our acts of mercy should certainly store within the body of Christ, but they should not be limited only to those within the body of Christ. If we walk in that way, if we live our, our faith in that way, we would be hypocrites. We would be people that only live within the church and for the church. But we're also called to go out. When Jesus was in Jerusalem uh, at this banquet that we read of in uh, Luke chapter 14, uh, and he, he gave these three speeches, one to the, to the guests, one to the host. There was a guy there, a brother there, an other Pharisee, and uh, this brother told Jesus, hey, I agree with everything you're saying. Like, good job. <laughs> you know, blessed is the son, of the, uh, the son of man. But Jesus knows our hearts. And Jesus is not the person you can exchange pleasantries with when he knows your heart. So Jesus tells this guy, oh, you do? Well, I got a story for you too. This might be the most important speech that Jesus offered in that home. Jesus tells this man, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come because everything is ready. The tables, the food, the drinks, everything is ready. Come over the house. But without excuse, they all began to make excuses. The first guy uh, that we read of, uh, when he sent his servant out, right? The first person that this servant goes to ask him, hey, my, my Lord has everything ready. Come and join in the feast. This guy says, well, I can't. I can't because uh, uh, I just bought land. He was investing in real estate. The second person tells the servant, I can't go because I just, I just bought five uh, uh, jokes of oxen and I was heading out to try them out. He was investing in his business. All of this, all of this stuff is good. It's good stuff. These are the things that our culture praises. Oh, you just bought a house. Great. You just bought a, you, you have a business and you're investing in your business. Praise God. 
The third guy says, I just got married. I can't go to this feast because I just got married. All of these three things were good things. I'm not, I'm not hating on these three things. They all were good. But that's the problem with idolatry. Idolatry likes to creep in. And it clothes itself in novelty. As something good. And it ends distracting you from the person of Christ. From God. The servant was disappointed. He heads back to the house. Uh, and he reports everything to his master. The master became angry and told his servant, Well, go out now, quickly, into the streets and the alleys of the city, and bring the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. Those that nobody wants to hang out with on a Friday night. The unwanted. Those who sometimes we categorize as liabilities. But the servant, the servant told the master, Lord, I've already done that. What you're asking has already been done. And I couldn't find him. When he says there is still room, that's what he meant. I could, I could not find him. Why? Gentrification probably had already come to this neighborhood. And the Lord says, He tells his servant to go out once again. And his statement is very clear. Going to the highways and the hedges. What he meant by that is go under the bridges. Go to the most neglected neighborhoods. Go to the places where nobody wants to live. Where nobody's looking at buying their dream home. Go to the margins of society. And invite him? No. The master tells his servant, make them. Make them. In Spanish, the word that is used is obligate them. Obligate them. Make them come in so that my house might be filled. This servant packed everything up again and headed out with a very clear mission. Clear instructions. I don't see God, I don't see the Lord saying, make those who, went, who, who just got a house, who have a business and just invested in their business or who, who, who just got married. Make those come in. No. But he did tell the servant, go and make the blind, the maimed, the poor come into my house. Today, many of these servants stand just as mercy stands alone in the busy intersection where the Imago Dei and true religion meet. In our streets, in our neighborhoods, in our most neglected districts within our cities. So the invitation for you today, as I build a case to do mercy... To love mercy, to be a lover of mercy. My invitation to you is to adopt a posture that resembles these two things. Yes, we need to be looking up to Christ, to Jesus for his second coming. 
But brother, do not miss. Do not miss the point. We also have to be looking at ground level. Not at any, any brother or sister. But the most vulnerable. The oppressed. The neglected. Those who have no aid. Those who are not being invited to parties. Those who are not uh, being able to maybe drive places. Sometimes they can come to our parties because they don't even have a car to drive. Those who might not speak your language. Those who live in neighborhoods that are being marked by gun violence. Domestic violence. Remember that if you put the entirety of Scripture into this plane and you knew every single law, but your plane, the wings in your plane don't, don't say love God and love your, your neighbor, your plane is not going to take off. It's going to crash. Do not miss these two. Let's pray. Father in heaven, lover of mercy and defender of the poor, we thank you for your word, Father. We thank you for Jesus in whom we find restoration. Brothers and sisters, let's be careful as we go into God's creation, for it does not belong to us. Let's be gentle with yourself and let's be gentle with others because they carry the image of the Father. For we are the dwelling place of God on earth. Let's be humble before God. And lastly, let's be quick to attend the needs of our neighbors as we learn how to be lovers of mercy. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.